Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Maz Jobrani. Maz is a comedian, actor, and producer with comedy specials, including Netflix original Immigrants, three additional solo specials on Showtime, Brown and Friendly, I Come in Peace, and I'm Not a Terrorist, but I've played one on TV, and his latest special on Peacock called Pandemic Warrior. Maz has made many appearances on TV's most popular shows, including Grey's Anatomy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Better Off Ted, Shameless. He is a regular on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He also starred as the title character in the award-winning indie comedy, Jimmy Westwood, which he co-wrote and co-produced. Maz has also co-starred in many films, including Disney's Descendants and Ice Cube's Friday After Next. He's a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He has given two TED Talks. His LA Times bestselling book, I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV, was published by Simon & Schuster. And Maz is the executive producer of Everything Must Change, a documentary he made about his sister Maryam's battle with breast cancer. He is also podcast host of Back to School with Maz Jobrani. And this is just some of what Moz is actively engaged in. I really enjoy this conversation, both about Moz's upbringing, his passion for stand-up comedy, his desire to make a difference and pick on bullies. So I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanatmahantavikoli.com. And finally, don't forget to follow this podcast. Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C. region, and Thursday Conversations with Global Thought Leaders. Now, here is my conversation with Maz Jobrani. Maz Jobrani, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thank you, Mahanjan. I'm happy to be here with you. Really excited, Maz. Love your comedy and what you've been able to accomplish over the years not just as an Iranian-American, but also as a funny man that has strong political views and advocates for the underdog. Maz, you were born in Iran. What were those few years of your life in Iran like, Maz? I left Iran when I was about six years old. I just remember playing a lot. We had a home where my father was a successful businessman. He had an electric company. We had a property that had our home on the upper area of the property bottom area of the property was my grandmother's home. And she would spoil me and my sister, Mariam. We would go down to her sometimes and she would give us money to go get candy. There was a store down the street. I had my cousin, Solar, who was about my age and we would play. And I remember we had a lot of Western influence. I had comic books like Spider-Man and Batman, and we would try to recreate those. I remember seeing Rocky in Iran when I was a kid. I was probably too young to see it. And a quick story that was very interesting, recently in LA, just maybe six months ago, I was doing stand-up comedy and Sylvester Stallone was in the audience. And I probably saw Rocky 
at least 40 years ago. It must have been like 19, I'm going to guess 76 or so, something around there. I went up to him after the set and I shook his hand. I said, hey, I saw your movie in Iran. It was the first movie I ever saw, maybe 40, 45 years ago. And he goes, oh, really? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> During those days, Maz, in Iran, what did you want to be before coming then to the U.S.? As a kid, I probably wanted to be a soccer player. I loved soccer. I had my cousin who had visited America. He would come back and bring me always some soccer gear. I'm guessing my early, early fantasies were to be a professional soccer player. Life has its own plans. So what ended up bringing you to the U.S.? So what happened was my father was on business in the U.S. And it was late 1978. Protests had started already against the Shah of Iran. And day by day, the protests that get more and more intense. And my father told my mom, he says, why don't you bring me and my older sister? He goes, bring them to the U.S. for a couple of weeks during the winter break, the school winter break, and maybe things will quiet down and you can go back. Well, I always tell people, I always say we packed for two weeks and we stayed for 40 years. <laughs> We'd even left my baby brother back in Iran when we first came because we thought we'd be back soon. I remember leaving. He was a baby. I remember kissing his little baby shoes on the way out in the middle of the night. I think it's a story of many Iranians and probably many immigrants. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a advocate for immigrants is because I always remind people that most immigrants aren't in a fantastic situation in their countries and getting up and coming to America. Most are fleeing a bad situation and they appreciate America. We end up here. So that's what happened. There is a lot of love for this country and the opportunities it gives to people, especially those people that run away from persecution and other things in their home countries. You want to stay for a couple of weeks. It's been 40 plus years. Maz, what a lot of listeners might not know, that there are still Iranians that are waiting and thinking that any day now, they're going to go back to the way things were 40 plus years ago. Yeah, that seems to be a common thing in the Persian community. I'm going to guess other, some other immigrant communities, maybe Cubans, maybe some others think that, oh, we'll go back once things get better. It's a very unhealthy way of living because you're just kind of living in the past. You're always saying once things get better, once things get better. And you really think that things are going to change and go back to what it was. My hope for the country, Iran, first of all, I feel that my culture is Iranian, but I don't think even if Iran were to be free of the Islamic Republic and become an actual modern democracy with freedoms and rights for their people, I still don't think that I would go live in Iran. I've grown up in America. I know America. I speak Persian, but English is my most comfortable language. So I could never imagine going back. But I do understand when there are people that are, let's say, of the older age. My parents came here when they were in their 40s. It really flipped their lives upside down. Or my dad was in his 40s. My mom was in her 30s. I understand when those people sometimes do want to go back or, or do move back. My father actually did move back after 10 years in America where he actually had come to America as a successful businessman with some money, but ended up losing a lot of his money in bad real estate investments. And so he went back and lived the end of his life back there. So I do understand those people who would want to go back, but 
it's also an unhealthy way of living if you're not able to adjust and move forward. Interestingly enough, it made me think two thoughts came about. One was during the pandemic, when we were all on lockdown and we were all waiting to go back to normal, I told my wife, I said, imagine it really hit me that my parents and others were waiting to go back to normal for 40 years and it just didn't happen. So imagine being in the pandemic, like lockdown pretty much for 40 years. That was one thought that came to mind. And the other thought that comes to mind is as we're in a country that's divided right now, the United States, sometimes I think to myself, what happens if, God forbid, a civil war were to break out and I were to have to grab my kids and wife and run out of this country? That would be like replaying my childhoods. I mean, it's unfortunate. It really is. A lot of things are possible, Maz. January 6th, we saw what could potentially even happen in this country. So we can't take any of our freedoms for granted, which is part of what I love about your comedy in that you don't shy away from politics. And I know you get some backlash from whether it's a Iranian community or others, but why do you get involved in politics? I think you talk about what interests you. So if let's say you're some young guy who's dating, a lot of comedians have a lot of jokes about dating and women, different women and all that stuff. It's just what interests you. And for me, it's always been an interesting subject. First of all, when I first came to America, imagine this, we were the, one of the first groups of immigrants who came to America and were quickly vilified because the people from our home country took the people of our new country hostage. And so then we were the ones who were getting all of the brunt of it. They would call you effing Iranian. They would beat you up. I just ran into a friend of mine the other day who was a year older. And he said, yeah, I remember he goes around that hostage crisis. He goes, the older kids would take him and hold him hostage like as a game. They would play hostages, like cowboys and Indians, but hostages and hostage takers. And the Iranian kid was the hostage in America. I think early on, I saw how the misrepresentation of a complete group could have detrimental effects on individuals that had nothing to do with this, what had happened in this world geopolitical situation. And then as I grew older, I was, I became interested in history and political science. I studied political science in my undergraduate years. And so I had an interest in it. So when I first started to stand up, I took a stand up comedy class and they would tell you to talk about what you know. And one of the things that set me aside from all the other kids was talking about being Iranian in America. And inevitably that would lead to talking about being misunderstood as an Iranian in America. Like one of my earliest jokes was as a kid growing up in America, it was hard because I could never get any kid to spend the night because we'd call the parents and my mom would say, yeah, we would like for your kid to spend the night. We're going to just keep them for a day or two. And they would think we're going to take them hostage when we're saying, you know, we're going to keep them for a day or two. So it was a silly joke, but it came from that point of view. And then once September 11th happened, for example, even though Iran had nothing to do with it, as we know, there was a big anti-Muslim backlash. I'm not that religious. I actually say I'm Muslim-ish. But again, I felt like, okay, we need to present the other side of the people that I, in a way, categorically represent, whether it's Iranians or Arabs or Indians or whoever this Muslim or brown, I want to be funny on that stage. And I want people to see it and go, oh, wait a minute, I'm an idiot. I just put everybody into this box that they're all terrorists. But in reality, there was 19 terrorists. And sure, there was other people that maybe supported them, but a majority of people are good. It all became pretty personal at times. And if you can make it funny, then it's good to talk about it. If you can't make it funny, and if you end up on stage 
getting into arguments with people, then you better rethink your strategy. Yeah, actually, I find humor is a great way for us to challenge our own assumptions and other people's assumptions. It's a lot more likely for people to be willing to challenge their assumptions when you approach it with humor. Now, Maz, I wonder, at what point did you realize that you were pretty good on stage, that this is something you wanted to do? As a kid, I grew up in Northern California and I fell in love with Eddie Murphy when I was a kid. I was like, that's my guy. So I wanted to be a comedian. And then at that point, my immigrant parents were saying, no, you're not going to be a comedian. You're going to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, one of those. And so in the seventh grade, I auditioned for the school musical. I got in. I took to it right away. The director said, when you're in a musical, when you're singing and dancing, you always have to be smiling on stage. And I analyzing it, I thought maybe being an Iranian or an immigrant kid, I was taught to listen to my elders, whereas I think a lot of American kids talk back to their elders and we don't talk back to our elders. I think what had happened was that has something to do with it because this director, Mrs. Bombright, Shirley Bombright had said, smile on stage. And one day I show up and I'm under the weather. I have a cold. I say, Miss Bombright, I know I'm just a background dancer because I'm one of the younger, because we had seventh and eighth grade. I was in the seventh grade. I was a background dancer, but I showed up because you said you should always show up and be here for the cast. That's it. She said, great. So I get on stage, I'm singing, I'm dancing, I'm smiling. She stops the whole <laughs> rehearsal. Stop. Everybody stop. Stop. Look at him. Look at him. He's sick. He's here. He's smiling. You all should learn from him. And I'm looking around and go, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. So it was positive reinforcement. Felt good. Fell in love with being on stage. The next year I do the school play. I'm one of the older kids because we're in the eighth grade now. And I get the lead in Little Abner, which is like, I'm this Iranian-American kid playing this hillbilly dude. <laughs> and so I was comfortable on stage from that age. I was good at being on stage. I kept doing plays. I loved being on stage. I always did well. My teachers would always say, you have what it takes to make it, my acting teachers. And I would say, I don't know what that means, but thank you. The one thing that I feared doing stand-up comedy, because when you do a play, it's other people's words. You're an actor. There's a director. If it doesn't go well, it could be anybody's fault. When you're doing stand-up, it's your words. It's your point of view. So I was really worried to put my voice out. When I was 17, I tried to do a stand-up comedy show. It was a talent show. I tried to write material about, it was basically all sexual material because I was a 17-year-old boy. And I would <laughs> write it down and I would think, oh my God, this is brilliant. And then the next day I'd look at it and go, oh no, this is horrible. After a while, I chickened out. And again, at the encouragement of my parents, I decided, you know what, I'll just make this a hobby and I'll go be that lawyer that my parents think I should be. So undergrad poli-sci, but always like took an acting class in college, then decided I'm not going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a professor. So graduate school, poli-sci, but I go over and I start doing plays in the theater department. Love being on stage. I'm alive on stage. Like I love being on stage. And so it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I really decided to do stand-up and I took that stand-up comedy class because I needed someone to help me figure out how to write. I didn't know how to write. And that really helped me. And then when do you find out you're good at stand-up on stage? At first, you think you're good. Because when you're first performing, you're performing in open mics with a bunch of other not good, amateur, mediocre comedians. And all you got to be is a little bit better than the really bad comics. And so <laughs> I had the stage presence. And I'm like, oh, I could stand on stage and tell jokes. Early on, we do something called bringer shows. A bringer show is where every comedian on the lineup brings four or five audience members. The idea being that none of us are known, so we can't just put our name on the marquee and hope people show up. So everyone bring a relative, bring a friend. 
And I was pretty good at bringing people. I would do my shows, my fans, my family, my friends, whoever they were, they'd be laughing and I'd be better than the people that were bad. But then when I became a regular at the comedy store, which is one of the meccas of comedy in Los Angeles, I remember going up on stage after other professional comedians and with an audience that wasn't my audience and just kind of having like death for 15 minutes. And I realized I really got to work on this. I always tell comedians, I say, you got to get on stage five to 10 times a week and you got to do that 10 minute sets, 15 minute sets. No one's giving you an hour. You're doing 10, 15 minute sets. And you do that for five to 10 years and then you start to get better and better. So more recently in the past, I've been doing this now for 24 years. In the past four years, I know I've been on stage at times going, thinking to myself, oh, wow, I'm really good at this. And I remember hearing Dave Chappelle say that in, in his comedy special. He said, I'm really good at this. And I was like, I just said that. And then I'm going, well, he's been doing it for 10 more years than me. I said, oh, wow, I guess I get better. <laughs> takes both that experience and commitment time that you put into it. It also takes a tremendous amount of planning, writing, testing of the jokes and all of those aspects of it. Now, I wonder, Maz, I imagine your parents were not very supportive of you giving up the dream of becoming a doctor or a lawyer. You had gone to Berkeley, gotten the undergrad degree before going into a PhD program. What was it like trying to have your family be okay with you pursuing this dream? I think I loosened them up. It was a combination of them and me. Being the oldest son, my sister Mariam was older, but then I was the oldest son. We had two younger brothers. My father had been the oldest son. He also had an older sister, but he had been someone who had to take care of his whole family because he lost his dad when he was young. And when he went to Tehran from the northern city of Tabriz, he goes to Tehran and starts this business. Then all of his brothers all start working under him. So my dad used to always tell me, take care of your brothers, take care of your sister, take care of this, take care of that. So early on, I was mature. And then I think because of that, I also had a little bit of confidence to be the one who would maybe if we needed permission from my dad to go somewhere, or do something, I was quite often the one put up to do that. And then I think my junior year in college, I went to Italy to study abroad. And my father had recently gone back to Iran at that point. So when I wanted to go to Italy, my mom and my aunt, who's my mom's sister, kept telling me, you should stay in America, be near your mom. She needs you now more than ever. And I said, look, I have to go to Italy. I've been learning the language. This is my junior year. It's the only chance I get. I got to do this. And I remember going at first and I remember my mom being upset at me going, but it was the, one of the best years of my life. So I did what I wanted to do for me and it ended up being great. So then when I come back from Italy, I tell my mom, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a professor. And that for her already, she goes, no, there's no jobs for professors. You should be a lawyer. Again, that was round two of me saying, this is what my life, I got to do my things. I was loosening them up. Then I dropped out of that PhD program and told my mom, I'm dropping out because I want to go audition for roles in LA. And she said, are you crazy? And she said, at least you should learn to be a mechanic. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I swear to God. I go, what do you mean? She goes, you know. People need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor. And I said, well, that's a good point. Um, but I asked her, I said, how'd you go from lawyer all the way to mechanic? There's other jobs in between. And so she was worried basically. And so I ended up actually having an office day job for a while in advertising. And it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties at the ad agency, there was a gentleman by the name of Joe Ryan. And Joe was a producer at the ad agency. He was older than me. He'd seen me do some of my acting. I was doing plays just for fun. And he says, hey, you got good comedic timing. 
you're good at this. Have you ever thought about doing it? I said, Joe, I've thought about it several times throughout my life and I'm going to save up money and pursue it when I'm 30. This is when I was in my mid twenties. And Joe goes, listen, Maz, he goes, I'm in my sixties now. And like you, I had things I wanted to do when I was in my twenties. And he goes, I never got around to doing them because if you really want to do it, you should do it. And it was a light bulb moment. I signed up for some comedy classes. Again, I slowly dipped my toe because it opened my mind. I realized you live once and you got to live for you. You can't live to make other people happy. And if you're making yourself happy, then maybe you can make your family happy because you're happy. And then if you're able to do that, maybe you can make others happy and maybe you can spread the love. Like my heroes were like Muhammad Ali and Mahatma Gandhi who affected the world. And I go, maybe if you do what you love doing, you can actually have an effect on others around the world. But again, it was buttering them up because like when I decided to take the comedy classes, I didn't quit the day job 100%. I kept the day job while I was doing comedy classes, while I was going to do a stand-up comedy. Still had my day job, which was working at an ad agency. I did it slowly, but I, I knew the direction I was going. It just took me a few years. Like I look back and there's comedians I know, friends of mine who started when they were 17. And I'm going, wow, if my parents had been encouraging, maybe I would have started at a younger age, but then I wouldn't have had the experiences that I had going to Cal and Italy and all the other stuff. And all those experiences fed into what eventually became your comedy. You got into comedy and some acting a couple of years before 9-11, which really impacted many people's perceptions, including Iranians. I still remember in all of our family's cards, everyone put a U.S. flag on the cards. On the house, we put U.S. flags. It's like, we are not one of them. Yeah, <laughs> So. Yeah. How was it trying to break into comedy and acting at a time when all of a sudden the stereotypes of Middle Easterners became the worst they have been in generations? Well, like you, I actually got that flag. I put the flag in the back of my car. I remember pulling up to the comedy <laughs> store. There was a comedian named Marilyn Martina. She started laughing. She goes, oh my God, Maz Brandi's got a flag on his car. I was like, hey, Marilyn. I go, they're, they're shooting Indian Sikhs. I guess racists don't understand nuance. They don't know the difference between a terrorist and a regular person, nor do they know the difference between any country in that part of the world. I started in 98. And again, I was talking about things that I knew. And a lot of times when people ask me, they go, oh, wow, September 11th must have changed your life. I go, well, the truth is, no, it wasn't that different because before September 11th, let's go back to the hostage crisis. I'm a kid. Hostage crisis happens. They call you FN Iranian. Your Iran's in the news every night. Nightline became Nightline because of the hostage crisis. It was originally just a show called The Iran Crisis America Held Hostage. And I think on day 141 or something, they changed it to Nightline. That was happening. Then that finishes. Then you have Iran Contra. Now that's happening. Then that finishes. And you have Not Without My Daughter, the movie with Alfred Molina and Sally Field. So it's constantly the idea of being considered a terrorist hadn't changed in 30, 40 years. Because by the way, every time they showed Iranians, they would show the mullahs with the turbans and you go, okay, this is not good. So I'd already been doing stand-up before September 11th hit. Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store, she Jewish and would always watch the news. And she says, I think there's going to be a need for a positive voice for Muslims in the near future. This is in 2000 because she'd seen the latest intifada with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And she goes, there's going to be a need for a positive voice. So she puts together a show with me 
and anybody else who's brown that's not black or Latino. I swear to God, we had uh, my friend Ahmed Ahmed, who's Egyptian. Then we had Aaron Cater, who's Palestinian. But then we had a friend of mine, Sam Tripoli, who's half Armenian. We had an Indian guy. We had a white girl who did a belly dance, so she threw her in. There's all kinds of people. It was a crazy show. And she called it the Arabian Nights. And so we were doing the Arabian Nights show before September 11th. And once September 11th happened, matter of fact, Mitzi said, you know what? I don't want you guys performing at the club for a little bit because of her worried. It wasn't like, oh, you guys aren't welcome. She was protecting us. She said, I'm not going to do you guys at the club for a little bit till things cool down. And we certainly are not going to do Arabian night shows because it's just too toxic. I mean, it's too much of a target. And it wasn't until actually six months or so after September 11th when we did the Arabian Nights again in La Jolla, California, which is near Camp Pendleton. And the managers called us and said, hey, guys, we just got a, a death threat for you guys. Someone said that they're going to come and kill you guys. Do you still want to do the show? And me and Ahmed were like, yeah, first of all, we don't <laughs> think it's real. But, you know, if we're going to die, may as well die on stage. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's probably a good way to go. The other thing that happened after September 11th was that a lot of attention came up on us because all of a sudden the press was saying, who are these Muslims doing comedy? And so we were all of a sudden in the New York Times and Time Magazine and Hustler. We went from intellectual newspapers to porno magazines. I was, I told people, I said, you know how disappointed some, some Marine is going to be when he's got his Hustler magazine and he's checking out this, you know, naked girl. And then he turns over and he says, Axis of Evil. He's like, oh my God, the terrorists are in my Hustler. So yeah, it got us more attention. One of the things was interesting too, because we would do morning radio sometimes. Some of the morning radio hosts would be just, I think they were trying to be funny, but they were saying, oh, September 11th was good for your career. And I was like, you can't say that. I go, that's offensive. I was taking crap before and then I'm taking crap after. And I said, no, because September 11th was a historical thing that happened, but it was not something that I saw as an opportunity. Yes, there was a lot more parts for people of my ilk in television because they were writing a lot more of these types of parts. I ended up doing a couple of terrorist parts, which actually the one terrorist part that I did with in a Chuck Norris movie of the week was done before September 11th. And then in between, before the actual thing came out, September 11th happened. And then I tried to get them to take it off. I said, please don't air this because they're shooting Indian Sikhs. And if somebody sees this movie where I'm playing a terrorist and then they forget that it was a movie and they see me walking down the street, they might shoot me. And that experience actually left a bad taste in my mouth. After that experience, I said, I don't want to play any more terrorist parts. And I played one more terrorist part on the TV show 24 because they offered us, they said, he's a terrorist who changes his mind halfway through the mission. So I called him the ambivalent terrorist. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll do the ambivalent terrorist. That was the last time I played a terrorist. That typecasting contributes to that unconscious bias that people have, Boss. And that's part of what you break down with your comedy on this immigrant experience. You've also amped up your politics, picking on bullies of all kinds in your comedy. Why have you gone more into that over the past few years? Well, I think, first of all, I think part of it is that since I was a kid, I've always been an advocate for the underdogs. I remember telling my younger brothers to always stand up to the underdog, always defend whoever's getting bullied. I tell my kids that all the time. My heroes were Muhammad Ali, who stood up for what he felt was right. He gave up his championship belt because he said, why am I going to go kill, he said, the yellow man, which is the Vietnamese. I have nothing against them. 
So if you can stand up for things that you believe in, I'm a big fan of that Colin Kaepernick. I'm a big fan of, of any kind of artist who has, makes a political statement. So for me, for comedically, you know, guys like Richard Pryor and George Carlin and those types of guys. And then later on, all the Daily Show guys. Currently, I watch Colbert's monologue pretty religiously. I watch it every night to get some of the news. So I've always been a fan of that stuff. Public Enemy had a song. It was called He Got Game. And at one point, there's a lyric in there, something along the lines of like, F the game if it ain't saying nothing or something. Like basically, you can have game, but if you're not saying something, what's the point? And then obviously, with the rise of Trumpism, I saw a major bullying, major hypocrisy, major just charlatan. It's like that blew my mind. The fact that Trump rose the way he rose. Listen, I have friends that are Republican and I have friends that are Democrat. I'm very left-leaning myself. And I say, if my Republican or conservative friend comes to me and says, this is what I believe when it comes to abortion and gun rights and taxes, I'm going to disagree with them. But I'm going to say, okay, we can have a conversation and maybe one day one of us will see the world the way the other does. But I still don't understand how anybody fell for the Trumpism and all the lies and all the stuff that he was doing. And then maybe if you say, okay, Mitt Romney, I go, okay, I disagree with Mitt Romney, but at least the guy's got some decorum. The guy is not going to come out. And even George Bush, if you remember after September 11th, he made a point of saying, this isn't a war against all Muslims. He went out of his way. So when I saw Trump talking about the Muslim ban and Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers and all that stuff, I go, what the hell? And I really jumped hard on social media, wherever I could, criticizing him, trying to expose that hypocrisy, trying to reiterate, because he was clearly lying in many cases. He was clearly vilifying groups, but people started to come on board. It was actually kind of sad to me to see the hatred that people had, that there was hatred like that hidden underneath. And people were just waiting for the excuse for the bully to start bullying. And then they started, they got behind the bully and they started bullying as well. And one of the biggest shockers was the, my own community, Iranian Americans that became so hardcore pro-Trump that they would argue or disown me. Some people would say, oh, you're a disgrace to Iranians. And they start making lies up about me saying that, oh, somehow I am funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I would say, well, where is that funding? Because I, I could certainly <laughs> use some money. I'm trying to remodel my house. Um, so it was pretty crazy. And as we all know, there was actual funding from the State Department for certain groups to go after other left-leaning or liberal-minded people like myself and others on social media. And really the argument, because I think a lot of Iranians fell for, Trump had this tendency to say things and just not do it. I'm going to build a wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. Well, it didn't happen. I'm going to have a healthcare plan that's going to be the best healthcare plan. Didn't have a plan, but was trying to disband the actual plan that we had. I'm going to have coronavirus is going to disappear next week. Oh, it'll just go away magically in the spring. I mean, just make stuff up, right? <laughs> Similarly with Iran, he was saying, I'm going to have, I'm going to get out of this Iran deal, which is the worst deal ever. I'm going to have the best deal. And also, I think that a lot of Iranians, thought that he is going to get rid of the Islamic Republic of Iran somehow. And so I think a lot of Iranians bought into that without taking the next step of going, well, then how do you do it? Because you can't just magically just lift up all the mullahs and all the clerics and the Islamic Republic can just move them and just have a democracy. So really the only way to do it would be to attack probably 
And I'm thinking to myself, oh gosh, if there's a war with Iran, as much as I hate the leadership of Iran and the government of Iran, a lot of Iranians would die. Innocent Iranians would die. Similar to what we saw in Iraq. And maybe it would become an unstable place where who knows who would take over. So all of that to say, a lot of Iranians were coming at me and I just tried to hold my own. And I said, I would either ignore them if they were trying to really drag my name in the mud, or I would say, listen, this is who I am. And even non-Iranians in my comedy shows, one of my clips that was on YouTube is if you Google Maz Jobrani Trump heckler, it's this lady at one of my shows and I'm doing my Trump jokes and she's drunk and she starts going, I, as a woman, I'm offended. And she's offended about my Trump jokes as a woman. I don't get that. <laughs> you should be the opposite. You should be offended by Trump's words as a woman. But I basically had learned at a certain point, because as a comedian early on, if somebody yelled, I would yell back. It actually derailed the show. So then I learned to Tai Chi it. So on that video, you see her yelling and me just going, oh, wow, what a great country that you as a woman can have an opinion and I as a man can too. And this is fantastic. And I would say, I would say, listen, I only have two more Trump jokes. You can stay if you want. You don't have to. So it became this back and forth. Um, that's how I dealt with it. I tried to Tai Chi it. And then I also gave into the fact that I'm going to lose some fans that aren't going to like me. But I was like, well, listen, if you're not going to like me because I'm criticizing Trump, then it was probably not for you anyway. Maz, uh, I talk a lot about organizational purpose and organizations aligning what they say and do along with their core values. And some people get turned off by that, an organization that takes a stand. That's quite all right. Other people are more attracted to it. But beyond that, it's the right way to approach it. One of the beauties of this country is giving people the opportunity and the voice to speak up. Part of what I've loved is that you both speak up for yourself, but also you speak up for the underdog. Yeah, I think what's the point of life? I think one of the points of life is to love, love your family, love your children, love your friends, love what you do, love your experiences. But another point of life is to help. And that feeling you get, even if you give a dollar to some guy on the streets, you, like, you feel like, oh, I did something good. And even further, if you can become an advocate for somebody or if you can help somebody, as you just said, get their voice out or whatever you can do. And that feeling is a good feeling. When the Muslim ban happened, that was an atrocious affront to me. I was a little like, oh my God, what's going to happen? There's these protests and I'm thinking, should I go down? Is it going to be hectic? Is it going to get violent? And I go, you know what? I got to go down. So I got an Uber and I had some people that I knew that were down there and I went down there. I went down to LAX and I protested and it felt so good to be there and showing it on my social media and making my voice heard and then going on and turning it into part of my standup and putting it on my Netflix special and just getting the word out like that. It helped. It helped me, meaning it helped me feel full, feel whole. So to be someone who comes in and goes, no, I don't want to try to be a part of any other thing. In my opinion, that's leading in pointless life. If you got in, you should turn around and help. Now, maybe you're a lawyer, you can help that way. Maybe you're a store owner, you can show up and give free food, whatever it is, but you should be involved. You shouldn't think, oh, I'm good, no one else, I'm not gonna take care of everybody else. I think that's a big part of life. And your empathy and compassion is part of what contributes to your comedy. So you've been very successful with the comedy with some roles in sitcoms and movies from being with Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David to also funding your own movie 
Jimmy Westwood. <laughs> so you had lots of success. And then we got hit with a pandemic, Mars, which has impacted everyone's life. However, I wonder how did it impact you being that comedy in part stand-up comedy is feeding off of the audience you're in front of? In the beginning, I was doing Instagram lives almost every day. And that got exhausting because I had to middle of the day or whatever in the afternoon, I say, okay, I got to go do my Instagram live. And I'd run away from my family and I'd go do an Instagram live. And as you said, for comedians, we need to hear the laughter, the clapping or the lack of laughter, whatever it is. And you can't on Instagram, you just get these hearts coming up. So then I was hesitant to do Zoom shows until we did a benefit fundraiser show for something. And we decided let's try it on Zoom and ended up being actually really doable and really fun. Because Zoom shows became a thing where I learned early on, you do the show and let's say there's a hundred people there. You tell 10 of them to keep their microphones unmuted so you can hear them and you encourage them, laugh. If it's funny, laugh. So they do that. And then meanwhile, every time you go to gallery view, you can see everybody. So you can go person to person and be like, oh, what's that? You have a, a bird on your shoulder? Why do you have a bird on your shoulder? You know? <laughs> so it became kind of fun. So I actually enjoyed it. And we also did outdoor drive-in shows, which is where we stood on a stage, told jokes in front of a bunch of cars, and they would project our image onto the screen behind us, and they would listen to us in their cars on a radio station. And the first time I did it, it was kind of hard because I can't hear them laughing, right? Because they're there in the cars. But the second time I did, I realized that we encouraged them to honk their horns if they liked the joke. So you would do a joke <laughs> and they'll go beep, 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 beep. So we did what we could to get through it. And then there was outdoor shows started to pop up with like social distancing. And the one thing that was good about it was that we were all going through the same thing. So when you went to a show and you did jokes about sanitizing your hands and cleaning the groceries and all that, so everybody was going through it. So everybody knew what you were talking about. And then for me, the silver lining was I didn't have to travel for that time because I couldn't travel. Whereas I travel quite often when I'm touring. So I was able to be home with my family. We watched a lot of movies with my wife and my kids. So there was a silver lining there. Also, we got a dog. We never had a dog. We got a pandemic puppy. So I see the silver linings, but I also see the damage that it's done a lot of people psychologically. And I'm just hoping that as we slowly come out of it, that people, well, I think people are coming out and I know everybody's exhausted and they, oh man, you know, I'm sick of wearing a mask and all that. I go, just follow the guidelines. Let's just stick to that. Let's try and limit the numbers of cases. Otherwise, we're going to keep on this roller coaster for a while. And all throughout, you've done a lot of great things. And I know you had started your own podcast before the pandemic picked up a lot of great conversations. What got you to start a podcast? Which, by the way, I ran into David Rubenstein, who had interviewed for the podcast also at an Economic Club of Washington event. And he mentioned being interviewed on your podcast. And you having left an imprint on him about Noruz, which is the Persian New Year celebration that Persians and people of Iranian background and descent and many other people from the region celebrate the beginning of spring as our new year. So what got you to start that podcast? Yeah, my podcast is called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. And the idea came about because my kids, two, three years ago, they're a little older now, they're 13 and 11, but when they were even younger, they would ask me questions that I just didn't have the answers to. Even something as simple as like, how does a television work? How do they do it there? And then it ends up on my TV. And I'm like, there's some sort of electrical. And then I go, I, I don't know, let's get an expert. 
So rather than Googling it, I said, let's just get experts in to talk to them and learn from them. So I was bringing in experts of all kinds from Firuz Naderi, who helped land the rover on Mars. We had Ricky Williams, who was the running back for the Miami Dolphins, who was kicked off the team when he was caught smoking weed, to David Rubenstein, who is an economist and the founder of the Carlyle Group. So we've had all kinds of people. It's become an excuse to talk to interesting people. We just had Rabia Chaudhry, who was the New York Times bestselling author and creator of the case against Adnan Syed, which was the HBO documentary about this Muslim boy who was, is in prison in Rabia's telling. He claims he didn't do. When I watched the documentary, I go, yeah, I think she's right. He's wrongfully there, but she's a prolific podcaster. Anyway, the point being that we have these interesting people on and what I do is I will show a clip or something to read to my son and I'll say, okay, what's your question to this person? Getting ready to talk to someone who's a professor of supply chain. So I go, what's your question? And the question is, well, when's the supply chain going to end and how will it affect prices? That kind of thing. We start with interesting conversation. Question from my son. We had this Frank Figluzzi. He was in the FBI. He was an assistant director, I believe, in the FBI. My son's question to him was, have you ever shot anybody? That's an interesting question to ask an FBI guy. And his answer was no, because the FBI trains you how to de-escalate. And, he, and that led into a conversation of why we have so many police shootings, because a lot of police departments don't train their police as well as the FBI in de-escalation. Again, it's been a cool thing. And Zoom has helped us get all kinds of guests. Robert Reich was on there. We've gotten all kinds of interesting guests. I think people can listen to it anytime. It's pretty evergreen and it's called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. It is great conversations. And I think the questions from your son, Dara, make it more fun at the beginning of it also. And what it shows me, Maz, is your own growth mindset in that part of what we have to do in this faster pace of change, which has nothing to do with COVID, for a lot of different reasons, we're going to experience a faster change and acceleration, we need to speed up our own learning and our own growth, which is part of what you're doing. You have your hands in a lot of different things. You've done a lot of great things. 2015, you introduced Michelle Obama at the White House, no ceremony. You've given the Berkeley commencement speech in front of 40,000 people. So you've done a lot of great things and many more ahead. I wonder, Maz, what do you want to be your legacy, your impact? He was a billionaire. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I really am at a point where I've been trying for a long time to get a show on TV from my point of view. I really would love to have that show come on and hopefully tell our story from our point of view, humanize Iranians, humanize Muslims, humanize immigrants as much as possible. And then I would love to be able to parlay that show into the ability to produce shows from other people, shows, movies, projects from other people from our backgrounds. Because I feel like there's a lot of talent, a lot of young talent. When I first started doing this 24 years ago, there was a handful of us. Now there's a lot. And I really want these stories to be told. I would like to work on normalizing the image of Muslims and Middle Easterners and just people from that part of the world in Western media. I mean, the same way they say Richard Pryor helped bring black comedy to a more broader audience so that there's white people watching it and laughing and getting it. The TV show Blackish 
there's been different people from these backgrounds who've been able to help normalize these people. Because the fact is, if you look at it another day, we all are the same. I, I didn't travel to the Middle East until 2007 after I'd left Iran. I'd visited once, but then I didn't really travel to see the Middle East till 2007 when we toured the Arabian Nights had become the Axis of Evil comedy tour. And you go to places like Egypt and Beirut and Kuwait and Dubai and all these places. And you realize, end of the day, everyone's just trying to feed their family, maybe have a laugh, just live life. If I can help other people in this country realize that the people from my part of the world just want that, then I feel to me that would be a great legacy if people could say, oh, he was the guy who had that show that showed that Muslim family it wasn't even that religious because the truth is a lot of Iranians aren't even religious. They had one relative who was religious who ended up being the nicest guy in the whole show. And the truth is, again, I have one of my cousins. He's the only guy who prays as a religious person in our family. And he's probably the nicest one in my family. I would hope my legacy is the person that helped do that and then really help others as much as I can. I stand behind that. I'm not just saying that as like a cliche. I would love to be able to help others in any way possible, because Lord knows we have a lot of problems that we can attack. We do, and I really appreciate the joy you have brought to so many people's lives, Maz, uh, advocating for people, and at the same time, bringing a lot of smiles and laughter into people's homes and lives. You're going to be in Washington, D.C. later this month. 18th and 19th is a Friday and a Saturday. We're doing the Kennedy Center Friday night's the big room, which is like 2,300 people. We've done it in the past. It's a lot of fun. And then Saturday will be the smaller room, which is about four or 500 people, a little more intimate, but it'll be fun again. I have a great lineup. It's me, Tehran, who's uh, a lot of people know he's half Persian, half black, very funny comedian. He's been my opening act for a couple of years now. I have a lady by the name of Zarna Garg, who's an Indian lady out of New York who started comedy later in life, but is very funny. And I have a musician by the name of Danny Asadi who does really cool experimental music and he's going to open the show. And so I think it'll be a perfect way to celebrate the spring. It's right before the Persian New Year. I'm looking forward to coming out. And then I continue to tour all over the U.S. as well as Canada, as well as Europe. I'm everywhere. So people can just go to mazjobrani.com to find those dates or they can go to at mazjobrani on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm always announcing stuff. Look forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C., and really appreciate you joining in this conversation, Maz. Thank you, Mahanjun. Have a great day. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.